this morning. We are continuing in our series through uh, the, the first part of Romans, really. And, and last week, I invited us to picture Paul running to Christians everywhere. Running to Christians everywhere with, with the, the announcement saying, I've got good news. I've got this amazing grace. I've got this good news. Church, church, here it is. Now that might actually be, be hard to picture considering the first three chapters of Romans are mostly about brokenness, sinfulness, God's wrath, lots of fun stuff. Last week we saw that there, that we're really only made right with God because of the grace that we've been offered through the person of Christ Jesus. We kind of sped through the first chapter, and we're not going to slow down much today at all either. We'll cover most of, or we'll cover all of chapter two, I should say, and most of chapter three as well. And it will mostly be an overview. So I do want to encourage you to take some time this week to sit down and to really read Romans one through three, verse twenty, in one sitting. The first chapter, it ends with this picture of Roman culture. Paul writes that God gave them over, that God allowed them to deal with the consequences of their sinful desires, of their shameful lusts, of their depraved minds. And if you pay close attention to to the first part of of Romans, the first chapter of Romans, I should say, Paul uses a, a whole lot of they language. God gave them over. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They were filled with every kind of wickedness. They were filled with every kind of greed. They were filled with every kind of evil. You can almost picture a a people sitting in, in a church, even nodding along their heads and saying, Yes, it's them. It's out there. It's everyone out there. Yes. They're all sinful. Bring on God's wrath for them. Jewish Christians would have heard the start of the letter and thought, it's all outside of our community. But then, in what we heard earlier, and what Pastor Darrell read earlier in chapter 2, the language shifts from them or they to you. Or more accurately, to all y'all. You inside the church. You who think that you have it all together. You who judge the wicked, the greedy, the sexually immoral, the depraved. You might want to look in the mirror. You are guilty of the same things. He doesn't call them hypocrites outright, but it comes pretty dang close. He's reminding the Roman church again that that. We are all sinners, that we are all guilty, that we are all unrighteous on our own, really that we all need the gospel. We all need that amazing grace that we just sang about. About 15 years ago, there was a study done about the church by by two sociologists um, out of Princeton about what was happening in the church, but also kind of broadly in religions in America. It closely connected to the studies that Rob Douglas mentioned two weeks ago uh, where he referred to the nuns. And and remember the the nuns, not N-U-N, 
like, like nuns, but N-O-N, the people, N-O-N-E, the people who check the box when they're filling out some sort of survey and they say, I'm not affiliated with any religion. Well, there was another kind of concurrent study done at the time about what was happening within the church. And this research group coined the phrase moral therapeutic deism. Deism. There is a God, but God is distant. And God isn't necessarily involved in the everyday workings of people. It's as if God created the world from a seat high up in the cosmos and then left the world to be. Deism. Therapeutic. God wants people to be happy. God wants people to be content. It's all about feeling good. Moralistic. Life itself is about being a good moral person. So the primary role of the church or of the synagogue or of any religious community is first and foremost about teaching good behavior. Moral therapeutic deism. Now, when we live into a community that is a a moral, therapeutic, deistic community, it reduces the church to a moral compass. It, It reduces God to a divine butler. And quite frankly, it encourages people in the church to shy away from the nuances of Scripture that are hard, like these first three chapters in Romans. As a result, we're, we either consciously or subconsciously make creating good or moral people the end goal, and we stop there. Following Jesus becomes secondary. In the same way that Paul's words would have been a warning to the Roman church as they thought, they, 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 and then it shifts to you, the words here in Romans 2 and 3 needs to be a warning to our church today as well. We all sin. We all need grace. The point of our journey together isn't solely about learning right from wrong. And we should take God's judgment seriously. That's why Paul commits most of the second chapter of this letter to it. We don't have enough time to cover, cover it all. Um, again, we're going to move pretty quickly. But, but broadly, in chapter 2, he gives six truths about God's judgment. First, God's judgment is fair. Paul writes that God's judgment is based on the complete truth. Now, in a courtroom, a jury or a judge, they look for a verdict and they use a phrase that always is connected to, to, to these, these words that, this phrase, I should say, that is, the decision is beyond reasonable doubt. They always make a decision that is beyond reasonable doubt. But mistakes are made in our courtrooms. Evidence can be questionable. Witness might, witnesses might not be creditable. The jury might hear something incorrectly. We're, we're human. We're broken. We're, we're limited. So we can't see the whole picture. But the first truth about God's judgment that Paul writes is that God does see the whole picture. So God's judgment is fair. God's judgment is inescapable. Now many Jewish Christians would have believed that they could escape God's judgment Because of their heritage. And Paul simply says, hey, think again. Think again. God's judgment is cumulative. In these first chapters of Romans, Paul points out how God's wrath is already on display in Rome. It's already evident. It was being revealed in the way that people were acting and the chaos that existed in the city and in society. 
But here he says, look, what you're experiencing now, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. More is on the way. This is good news, right? Fourth, God's judgment is based on human action. In verse 6, he writes, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Our actions matter. This is the first time that Paul, in his letter, specifically differentiates between Jews and, and Gentiles while talking about God's wrath. Now, it had been applied all along, but here it's explicit. In chapter 2, verse 9, he's, he says essentially, look, not only are you first in line for, for honor and peace, like I wrote about in chapter 1, verse 16, but if you do evil, you're also first in line for the trouble that's on its way. Fifth, God's judgment is impartial. Verse 11, Paul writes, God does not show favoritism. Sin is sin regardless of how it looks. And God's judgment is based strictly on the response we give to the truth that's been made available to us. And then, before Paul commits the second half of this chapter to to the difficulty of, of following the law, he notes that God's judgment is, is coming. We won't necessarily know how, we won't necessarily know when, but it is on the way. Now, that's a very quick, very quick overview of, of, of Romans 2. But, but a good summary of it would be is that mercy and judgment are opposite sides of the same coin. Opposite sides of the same coin about God caring deeply about the people that God created. In the first part of Romans 3, Paul addresses the pushback that he expects to hear from Christians as he talks about God's judgment. So the first eight verses of, of Romans 3, he, he, he talks about God's faithfulness and he, he, he goes into this method of writing or, or of arguing where he poses a question and then answers it himself, hoping that the people will hear this, this writing and they will wrestle with what he's talking about. Now you can almost hear the part of, of Paul's, this part of Paul's letter, you can hear those who are, are reading it or seeing them kind of grumble and complain, oh, this isn't fun to read. We, we, we don't want to, we don't really want to hear this. After all, they were the ones who deserved God's favor, God's righteousness, not God's judgment. And he comes back and he says, whoa, whoa, calm down. He never actually wrote that there isn't any value in the law. He, he doesn't explicitly write that, but he is explicit that it doesn't give anyone a privilege. Instead, it gives added responsibility. So he anticipates a few questions that, that might come. And again, we're running through this very, very quickly. But I think it's important to acknowledge that these were questions he likely wrestled with himself as well during his own conversion. The first is about whether or not there was an advantage to being Jewish at all. He pictures them asking, why should we deal with things like circumcision and things like the, the holiness laws if we don't get anything out of it? Why, why follow them if, if it doesn't give us anything? And Paul's answer is it's, it's pretty simple. Those of you who grew up with the faith, you were the first to hear God's word. 
You've had longer to grow, longer with, to wrestle with what it means to be a part of my people, a longer amount of time to experience my love. That's what you get. You've had it longer. Well, well then, then what about them? What about the people who are, are unfaithful? The people who took what was entrusted to them and they did nothing with it. Does their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And Paul writes, of course not. When we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. Now, this is a truth that Paul comes back to over and over again in his writing here in Romans, but also in his his other letters as well. God's promise is never nullified. It's never wiped out, never erased, no matter what we do or don't do, no matter what anyone else does or doesn't do, God's faithfulness still remains. Then, then he postures, well, what, what about God? What, what does this say about God's wrath? What about God's judgment? If our sin makes it it's so God's righteousness can be seen more clearly, shouldn't we just keep sinning? Shouldn't we just keep doing what we're doing so God's righteousness can be revealed? And what about sin in the first place? Shouldn't we keep sinning? Shouldn't we just keep doing this? These, these two last questions are tied together. It's as if Paul is saying the same thing over and over and over again, taking a, a different approach to the same argument. And maybe even, if you pay closely, atten- pay attention closely, ratcheting up the sarcasm along the way. He finds as many ways as he can to say the people are broken and sinful, inside and outside the church, Jew and Gentile and everyone in between. And at the same time, God is completely just, which means judgment and wrath are inevitable. God remains faithful through it all. Then finally, at the ninth verse of chapter 3, we read this. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the, cha- the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As Paul concludes this really uplifting start to his his letter... It's as if he's saying, even if it feels like you don't have much in common with the Gentiles or with the Jewish converts, we're all in this together. We're all guilty. We're all sinful. We, we, we all are unrighteous and we all need the gospel. For Paul, it doesn't matter who you are or what God has given you. All of us alike are under 
the same thing. We're all broken. We all live under the power of sin. It's something that we can't escape. If you've been around Westminster all that long, you've heard me preach a handful of times, and and you've heard me quote Eugene Peterson quite often, and one of my favorite lines that he writes is, every congregation is a congregation of sinners. And as it, and excuse me, as if that weren't bad enough, they have a sinner for a pastor too. The moment we make perfection or complete health a prerequisite for belonging in our church is the moment we stop becoming Christ's church. We are all broken. And the same thing is true the moment we convince ourselves that we are better or more deserving of Christ's love than anyone else. We stop becoming Christ's church. When Paul writes that all of us are under the power of sin, he's intentional with his word choice. It's a concept he uses elsewhere in his writing as well. In Galatians chapter 3, when he's talking about the role of the law and its relation to Christ, he says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. And in 1 Timothy 6, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. To be under something or to be under someone is to be placed under the authority or power of that person. Our problem isn't necessarily what what we have done. That's not our problem. Our actions just point to a deeper concern. It's like the, the difference between the symptoms of a disease and the disease itself. The two are definitely connected, but typically the symptoms, they just point to a deeper condition. And in verses 10 through 18, Paul turns to to words that most of his first readers would have known. They uh, They would have been familiar with, and he describes that reality by quoting Isaiah and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and the Psalms, that that whole really uplifting part of, of Scripture that he wrote about, about mouths being like graves and, and those sorts of things. It's all out of the Hebrew Scriptures. And we should note that Paul didn't often quote the Hebrew Scriptures. So when he does here, it's, it's significant. And he's not necessarily implying that the Jewish Christians in Rome are guilty of the exact same thing that the writers of the Old Testament were, were addressing. He's just communicating the breadth of the sinful condition. And then in verse 19, he continues by saying that no one can escape it. Again, we're all guilty. I think every parent or or pet owner who has ever walked in on their child or their, their young pet either during or right after they've created a mess or, or had a mistake, they, they know the look. Who? Me? No? Not, not me. I, I didn't do that as you walk in and see whatever it is that the puppy has chewed up or the mess that, that the child has made in the kitchen. We've all seen that. Me? No. I'd like to think that God sees that same sort of silly, childish expression on our faces from time to time. And Paul concludes, therefore, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight. No one will be made right with God 
by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become aware, conscious of our sin. So Paul, he's introducing these, these two simple truths here in verse 20. And he spends the rest of this letter, where we're going to be really for the rest of 2022, unpacking them. First, no human being, Jew, Gentile, first century Roman Christian, 21st century Christian in Westlake Village can be made righteous by the law. No one. And second, the law makes us aware of our sinful condition, but it doesn't fix it. And it's because of our our brokenness, our sin, our guilt, and our inability to make ourselves right with God on our own that we need the gospel. That's what we just sang about with amazing grace. Now, I know we, we've walked through quite a bit this morning and that we walked through even more last week. Reading through this first part of Romans, chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, is like drinking from a fire hose. It, it is a lot. And I would encourage you to go home and read through some of what we've, we've glossed over this morning. The truth is, we have to get through these first three chapters to get what I consider to be the good stuff. Next week, we'll move on to the, we'll move on from the, the, the why, or excuse me, we'll move on from the what and the why to a bit more of the how. Let's pray. Lord God, you, you know that we need your grace. May we be a people who lean into it each and every moment of our lives. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.